chapter 2. Jonathan, my little remote is not working, and I am not nearly uh, multitaskable enough to get it connected right now. So you want to you, you roll? If, if he's off by a couple of slides, it'll be because I'm just making stuff up. Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, he says, you are inexcusable. How many times has your mom said that, right? Yes. There's no excuse for you. Why? Absolutely no excuse. This is Paul saying to all of us. So if you, you say your mom says that, Paul says it's inexcusable for you too, mom. Do, do not say that. I mean, you can, but it just would not, be, would not go well. I'm just going to tell you right now. That is not going to go. That will not be helpful. <laughs> oh, man, whoever you are who judge for what, in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. And for you who judge, practice the same things. Now, verse 2. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And he's talking about what we just read about last week in chapter 1. And do you think this, O oh man, who judge those practicing such things and doing the same that you will escape the judgment of God? In verse 4, or do you despise the riches of his goodness, his forbearance, and his long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Father, we are desiring today that your word would be a lamp for our feet, that it's, this is not an academic exercise. It's us encountering the supernatural uh, communication that you've given us. And uh, for each of us today, that you have a word for each of us, and it's probably not the same for any of us. And so that our hearts would be ready and moldable to hear what you have to say to each of us individually. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. If you've got a smartphone uh, Conduit Church U version, there is a live event, which basically is a fancy way of saying that the notes are online. Uh, so if you're a U version guy, it's on there. You can follow along. You can actually make notes for yourself, share them with each other. I do encourage you to have pen, paper, pencil, smart something to write with because the Lord might speak to you, and it might not be what I say. You might get to a passage of Scripture, and the Lord might start to speak to you Check out for a little bit. Write down what he has to say. Take it in. You can always catch up later. Uh, if, but if the Lord speaks to you, it's just good to have something to write with so that you don't uh, forget it when you leave. This is a fascinating passage because, you know, when I was a kid, the most uh, common scripture, if you were to say, hey, what's the most famous scripture in the world? We would have said John 3.16. But today, the most common scripture amongst especially young people is, judge not lest you be judged. You know, oh, I'm just doing this. Don't judge me, bro. You know, like the, what was the, uh, the political rally where they, the guy comes up and the don't tase me, bro? Do you guys remember that? If you don't go home and Google a little bit, you'll waste an entire afternoon of productivity. But uh, the don't tase me, bro, is like the same thing with the don't judge me, bro. It gives me the permission to do whatever I want to, and you can't judge me for it. That's the uh, implication, except that's really uh, not what it's saying. He is saying that, Judging here is to condemnation. And the thing is, is this. As Americans, we're kind of bad at judging anyway. Uh, anybody remember who won season five of American Idol? You, if you do, please don't say. Uh, if you said Daughtry, you would be wrong. He came in fourth place. Taylor Hicks came in first place. Taylor who? Now, in fairness, Daughtry won. <laughs> 
Do you know what I'm saying? But he just didn't win because uh, we judged wrong. As Americans, as uh, humans, the human race, we are pretty doggone bad at judging. Now, what Paul was saying here is don't judge unto condemnation. It's the, uh, the heavy-hearted, heavy-handed Westboro Baptist Church whack job. You're all going to hell on a grease pole, and here's my sign to prove it kind of judging. It's also, though, when we just, we don't, may not have a sign in our hands, but we have a sign on our face when we're around somebody that we just don't, ugh. It's that, ugh, that gross, like uh, teenage girls, like when your brother passes gas, that look you give him, that, ugh, ugh, look, that's the look that we're giving when we're condemning someone. And he says, don't do that. The other side of that, though, is we can judge according to identification. And what I mean is that, for instance, I have a 15-year-old daughter, and a, and a young man pulls up to pick her up, and he's got his pickup, and he's got some flow rider kicking and an open can of beer in his hands. I just want you to know, I'm going to judge him. <laughs> I'm going to identify that he is not uh, who my daughter is going to go out with tonight. It's okay to have a moment of identification, but not a moment of condemnation. That's what the Lord is saying. And the reason is this, is we are really, really bad at the judgment calls. We're bad at it. And, and there's two reasons that Paul unfolds here. One is he says, because you're doing the same thing. You guys that are judging are doing the same thing. Now, the problem with that is that I'm not murdering anybody. So I think, oh, I'm, not getting, you know, I'm not that bad. And, and understand this. There's a, a little bit of a misnomer in theology that all sins are equal. Right? And, and I get that, and we're all before the throne of God. But the truth is, is there are some sins that do have worse consequences. If I murder one person, that's awful and it's terrible, but it's, there's more consequences if there were 10 people, more families, more. So it's just, it's not like common sense, it's biblical. Jesus would refer to Judas and say that this is a greater sin. But here's the thing. When he says you're all doing the same thing, it doesn't necessarily mean the same exact thing. It means we're just all playing the same game. Understand that the, probably the best way that I could uh, explain this to you is with the game of Uno. Because you might have a draw four, you might have a skip, you might just have a red one, but we're all playing the same game. So when he says we're all doing the same thing, you yourself are doing the same thing, at the end of the day, we're all in the same game. If I choose to live this way where I'm going to judge somebody to condemnation, we're all playing out of the same deck of cards. And what he's saying is the unfolds the gospel story here is he's going to get to grace and salvation, but saying you choose to live this way where you're going to judge people by their works, you're going to get to be judged by that as well. You're saying to them, to God, I'm going to do it on my own my own judgment, my own righteousness, my own thing. And at some point, standing before the throne, you're going to hear in the background, Uno, and it's Satan who is playing from the same deck. And he called it, and you're the last one. But here's the thing, he's going as well. Your winning in this game is, uh, is still losing. You don't want to be dealing from that deck. He's saying that we can't judge because we're all playing from the same deck. And it's, we just, it's a card game we don't want to be a part of. And he goes on to say, in verse 2, but we know the same, that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. So the first reason why I can't be judging is I'm guilty of the same things. Also, because Jesus is judging according to truth. 
We, on the other hand, are not. We're judging according to what we know. And I've got great news for any one of us here today. And this is awesome news. It's going to bring you an enormous amount of uh, freedom and joy. I and you are not Holy Ghost Junior. He doesn't need my help. I'm not good at it. I can't see like he sees. He actually says in Hebrews that everything is laid bare before him. Everything. He knows everything. I don't know everything. I only know some things, and I can make judgment calls that are impaired, that are based upon my opinions and my thing. And ultimately, the freedom and the reason this is such great news is I don't have to even worry about it. I just get to love people. The spirit inside of me, the gift of the fruit, I should say, of the spirit is love. So he gets to do that. He gets to figure out how the aborigine in the most remote part of the world will be judged. I don't know how he's going to do that. But I do know this, that someday you and I will stand before his throne, it says, and we'll say, righteous and true are your judgments, O God. That was awesome, the way that you thought that through and the way that that turned out. My judgments are not so awesome. I voted for Taylor Hicks. I didn't know that that was, but we can stand before him and say, I'll let you take care of that. I am not Holy Ghost Junior, not my job, not my even responsibility. And I'm telling you, there's a lot of freedom in that. I don't have to even look at other churches and say, oh, they're so doing this, and oh, this church is so doing that. Because I can just say, look, I'm not Holy Ghost Junior. That's his gig. My gig is to follow the Spirit inside of me and to let the, the, the Spirit flow through me. And when that happens, there's going to be evidence of it, which is the love of Christ flowing through me. That is what he does in us. And here's the good news. When he does that, it's the gospel happening in the world around us. When I look to the world, there are times that I think, oh, there's a lot of injustice happening. And people maybe that have come from an agnostic or an atheist background, one of the struggles is always, uh, why does this evil exist in the world? And why is God not doing anything about it? Now, keeping in mind, most people that I hear that from, whether it's Dawkins or Hitchens, or, they're saying that, but they ain't exactly doing anything about it themselves. And they can't, because ultimately when you follow that path, then we're just animals and there's no need to go to Africa. I mean, uh, we just let them die because it's just a lot less mouths to feed. That's the path that they go on in that world. But here's the game. that We look at it and say, God is doing nothing. Eli Weissel, who survived the Holocaust, wrote these words that are so poignant. He says, I did not deny God's existence. I doubted his absolute justice. Because it looks like he's not doing anything if I'm not looking at the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ that Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because the thought that God is doing nothing, then I would be ashamed of that. What kind of a God would do that? But the gospel says to me that he's not doing nothing, he's doing the gospel, and that's everything. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15 that the gospel is Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, rose on the third day, the, uh, you know, according to the scriptures, and that's what it is. But then he goes on to say what happens because of it. And that is our lives forever live on in eternity with him. Paul would say in Romans 8, he talks about how all of creation is groaning as if in childbirth. 
We have some uh, folks in our own world. Now, Shannon and I are very big fans of the epidural. Like if they had a TV thing where they needed some unpaid spokespeople, I'd have been right on there. It was awesome. It changed my life. And I wasn't even having a baby. <laughs> but it was awesome. Now, some of you, though, you kick it like prairie style. Like Civil War style, right? And, and you know that it's painful. It's bloody. It's constricting. And it's beautiful. This life, this side of heaven can be a little constricting, it can be a little bloody, it can be a little dangerous, it can be scary, it can be beautiful. And our birth, Paul says, is when we are born into his kingdom, to a body that is incorruptible. And the thing is about birth is we look at this side of heaven and think, this is awful, this earth, it's all I know, and it's, it's a blip in the, in the scale of eternity, it's a, a nanosecond here. It's birth. And here's the thing. Birth, as crazy as what I just described is, you girls sign up for it again. And again and again. Some of you and again and again and again and again. Because it's awesome. And that's what the, the, the gospel says this, that this life, this side of heaven, God is not impotent and he is not doing nothing. He is doing the gospel and it is everything. And as we are born into his kingdom forever, We'll look back on this and say, that was awesome. And we don't understand it this side of heaven. And that, my friends, is what faith is. Faith isn't about me getting something that I want. It's me connecting to the Lord, saying that this gap between what I understand and what your truth is, is filled with faith. Paul says here that I shouldn't judge because I don't know what's going on even in the, in, the, in the grand scheme of eternity with the gospel that's happening. And so my job is not to judge it. My job is to love everything around me. And here's the great, greatest act of faith we can do. And that is when I don't judge, when I'm not trying to figure out how that happened or why it happened, but I'm instead just saying that I'm gonna let the Lord do it, it's the ultimate act of faith. Whether it's on a macro level with the global, the geopolitical stuff, or it's on a local level when someone hurts you. And I am not going to judge them under condemnation because I trust that God can take care of that for me. It's so funny what I say, I want what? I want justice. I really don't. What I want for me is mercy. What I want for you is justice. And the Lord says, I'm giving mercy to everybody. And that's what he says here, that in verse 3, not only is it you know, that we don't know everything, we're doing those things itself, but he says this. Now look, it's, uh, it's not even a good way to witness to people. It's not even a good strategy. And he says in verse 3 that, and do you think this, O oh man, you, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you'll escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, his forbearance and his long suffering, not knowing that it's the goodness of God that leads to repentance? Not, not me. I mean, I don't know. Uh, I don't have any numbers on this. I'm assuming Barna does not. But I'm assuming that the numbers with the people with the sandwich boards and the bullhorns are pretty low as far as the success rate. I mean, judging from the size of Westboro Baptist Church in, in Topeka, Kansas, being 30 people, most of which are all the same family, not very successful. And that's, it's no surprise. He said it wouldn't be. He said it's his goodness that will lead us to repentance. But for us, for you, oh, by the way, I had an excellent picture of the Westboro people. I'm sorry, if I had my remote, I'd have told you about this. Um, I follow these people on the Twitter, and uh, they're crazy. Look at that guy. <laughs> 
the God hates science guy. <laughs> and then uh, last night, uh, Marjorie Phelps, when uh, Whitney passed, uh, this was her Twitter feed from last night. I mean, that's, that's going to get some people saved in a hurry. And that's their life because they're not using the goodness of God to lead people to repentance. They're using harsh, angry judgment. It's not my job. It's just not my job. I'm not so concerned about us and our judging. And in this room, maybe I should be. I don't know everybody, but I'm more intrigued by the next sentence that he uses when he says that, do you despise the goodness of God? Because that is a little bit more like me. That one stung a little bit, especially when I understood what it meant. And to help understand what it means, we just need to ask Michael, not Jackson. Michael, David's wife, Michael. Remember Michael? She was Saul's daughter. And Saul was giving a wife to David. Merab, I think, was her name. So David comes back from battle and ready to collect his wife from Saul the king. And, and Saul done married her off to somebody else. And, and David's like, ah, that really kind of not good. And, but meanwhile, there's Michael, the sister, the young sister. And she's kind of thinking he's hot because he's all like dominating and killing people. And, and plus he's a musician. And, you know, you girls fall for that. And so she's, he's kind of fetching. And so, and I, I want you to know that sometimes in the scriptures, you just can't make this stuff up. This is actually in there. So Saul says, you want her? And Saul does not want David in there because Saul is beginning to become jealous of David. So he thinks he's sending him off on a suicide mission. And he sends him off and he says, if you can bring back 100 foreskins of Philippine, or Philippines, Philistines, <laughs> Philistines, then you can have her. He brings back 200. She must have been smoking, right? I mean, he brings back 200. And he marries her. Now, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, if you've got your Bibles with you, I'd like you to see how this story unfolds. And we're, we're not going to take a lot of time on this, but I really want this to soak in, like, hopefully like it did to me. And if not, maybe the Lord's got something else to say to you. And again, feel free to check out, and I'll see you when I'm done. He says in uh, verse, chapter 6, 2 Samuel, verse 6, this is David returning with the Ark of the Covenant. It's been years that have passed. He's married to Michael, among a few others. And it says that he's bringing back the Ark of the Covenant from the Philistines, not the Philippines, the Philistines who had captured it. And in verse 6 it says that, and then they came to Nacon's uh, threshing floor. And uh, Uzzah or Uzzah, depending on your, uh, again, colloquialisms, put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen shook it. And the anger of God, verse 7, was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him, therefore, for his error. And there he died by the ark of God. Now David was displeased with this, it says, verse 8, uh, because the Lord had made a, a breach upon Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perusa to this day. Now it gets good. In verse 9, And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How shall the ark of the Lord come to me? Saying, look, if this is what the ark of God is about, I don't want it anywhere near me. Verse 
10, so David would not remove the ark of the Lord unto him into the city of David, but he carried it aside to the house of Obedidim, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord continued in the house of Obedidim, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed Obedidim and all his household. And it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obedidim and all that pertains unto him, because the ark of God so went David and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obedidim into the city with gladness. In verse 13, And so it was that they bare the ark of the Lord had gone six paces. They would basically go six steps, do a sacrifice, six steps, a sacrifice, six the number of man, seven the number of perfection. They were painting a picture that God was the one that was going to carry this thing. And it says that they were burning, uh, sacrificed oxen and fatlings. Sounds delicious. And verse 14, and David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was girded with a linen ephod, which is basically in his underwear. Now, sidebar, I grew up in a church where we did the E minor Sunday about once a month, okay? And if you grew up in a little charismatic church, you remember this. If not, this is really, this really happened. We would do E minor Sunday, and it was all these like quasi-Jewish songs, uh, and they would build, and then they would, the climax of the day would be the, uh, when the spirit of the Lord moves on my heart, and then you would uh, sing like David sang, and they would build a clap like David clapped, and then the moment, dance like David danced. Now, in fairness, apparently nobody had read this, and in the church I grew up in, thank God, nobody had read this, because uh, it would have been a fascinating day. It's A minor Sunday? Yeah, we were in E minor. We, 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 we couldn't, our pitch wasn't quite that high, we couldn't get to the, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, we're back. And it was told, uh, wow. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord, verse 15, with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. So everybody's shouting, everybody's dancing, but look who's not. Look who's not singing, look who's not dancing, and look who's fully clothed. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And make note of this, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had pitched for it in. David burned, uh, offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Go down to verse 20, 20. And then David returned to bless his household, and Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how glorious the king, she's mocking him, the king of Israel was today, who uncovered himself in the day, and the eyes of the handmaids and the servants, and as one in, of the vain fellows shamelessly, she's basically just dressing him down. How could you do this? You're so gross. And David said unto Michael, it was before the Lord which chose me before thy father, and before all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore I play before the Lord. And verse 22, and I will yet be more vile than this, and I will, uh, will base in mine own sight, and out of the maidservants which thou hast spoken of, of them I will be had an honor. And therefore Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child unto the day of her death. This story paints a picture for us, for me. Michael's story from beginning to end of what it means and what are the dangers of when I begin to despise the goodness of God. There's three things that I want to say to you, three things I'd like you to jot down, three things I'd like you to chew on, pray about, and seek out maybe this week if, if it speaks to you. But when I, there's three things that I see in Michael's life when she was despising the goodness of God that might resonate with you. I know it resonated with me. Number one, it was she despised when someone was extolling the goodness of God. 
he's naked, he's in the flesh, right? And what do we do when we see somebody really uh, openly worshiping the Lord and we, uh, they're just doing it for attention or they're in the flesh or that's not in the spirit. And we begin to despise the goodness of God because they're connecting with the Lord. It's not my business. How it, David was in the flesh, he's naked. You can't get any more in the flesh. And so they're doing that and worshiping the Lord and Michael's over there despising it. When we go to a nation like Haiti or Africa and the church service and they're worshiping, and let me tell you, in here, if somebody cuts a rug, does a lap, that's a, that's a distraction. It's like, oh, that's interesting. In Haiti, Africa, India, when they're worshiping the Lord and I'm just standing there, I'm the distraction. It's like, are you, do you not know Jesus died for your sins? Oh, you should dance about that. They're just, I'm the distraction. And so for me to despise when someone is extolling the goodness of God. It happened to Michael, she was barren. If you want a barren existence in your heart, it's despising when someone else is extolling the goodness of God is a great way to find your path to barrenness. Number two, when it was extended to others, and it says that so David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father, she was looking at David and, and angry and jealous and saw that the goodness of God was extended to him and she's despising him, she's jealous because, I mean, in fairness, she probably wasn't treated very well. It's the only time in the Hebrew Bible that we see the passage that um, uh, she loved David. Michael loved David. Never anywhere else in, in uh, the Old Covenant is it referenced that a man loved a woman or vice versa. But notice that it does not say that and David loved her. In fact, David, when he was off on the run, she was given to someone else in marriage by her father. She was with him 10 years. And so when David came back to town, he took her back. And it's recorded that her husband followed along behind weeping as Michael was carried back to David. David was not exactly a shining example of goodness. And God was showing him goodness anyway. For me, I want you to know that's a hard one for me. I look around and I see, man, that guy's not even a nice guy. I'm the nicest guy I know and look what's happening in his life. And he's, and I begin to despise the goodness of God in what God is doing in him instead of being grateful that God has, in fairness, been pretty good to me. But I'm looking at him, I'm despising what God is doing in his life and not realizing that Jesus said that Matthew 5.45, that it would rain on the just and the unjust. When I look around the world, I see that. By the way, rain in our culture, that's bad news, right? Because it rained on your parade, all those negative connotations. Jesus was using it in the positive sense because their rain is awesome. And he's saying that it'll happen to both. And it's God's goodness and his mercy. But I think it's Psalm 73 where David actually talks about, I've thought about how God prospers the wicked and it just, I it's, it hurts, I can't even think about it. It makes me so mad. He is good. It's his goodness extending to us. And be careful because the other side of the coin is when I look to a natural disaster and I think, yeah, that's just God judging those people. Right? Have you ever done that? Oh, that's God. He's angry. Look what he, in New Orleans, that'll teach you. Jesus said in Luke 13, there was a, uh, a tower that had collapsed. And he spoke to the people 
uh, who came to him saying, hey, what happened to those guys? Where's your God now mixing the sacrifices? And, and Jesus said to them something really interesting. He said, do you think that, it, that you are any better than they were that this happened to them? Saying that it wasn't because they're so bad that this happened to them and that you should be glad that it happened to them. He actually is saying, you think you're any better? And then he goes on to say that this, basically, the, uh, it's Luke 13, 1 through 9. What he's saying in the Darren version, the Message Bible version is, you're just lucky it hadn't happened to you. It's not that they're so bad that, you, that this happened to them, it's that you are bad as well, and the only reason that you're still standing here is because of the goodness of God preventing it from you. God does not bring it on us, but he withstands it, withstoods it, someone get a verb, uh, withholds it from us. Now my tendency is to think, oh, God's on it, he got them, and what our reality be is I don't need to be uh, despising the goodness of God in them and I shouldn't be celebrating when someone else, when something bad happens in their life because it's not God dropping it on them. It's me just being grateful that God's goodness is in my life. And he would go on to say this, and this is what we see in Michael's life because she had this idea this, that she had been just hosed. She had been ripped off and gypped. And so she is being bitter and she is withholding and she's despising the goodness of God, the long suffering, the patience, not realizing that she had the opportunity, by the way, to worship right alongside. This is a big deal. The ark is coming home. It's in her town now. Over in, the, in Gibeah, there is a, 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 the, the tabernacle of Moses, the tent. The ark had been gone for years and the priests still going in, still doing their thing. And there wasn't the presence of God there for years. He had moved on. And here in Jerusalem, the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God was there. They didn't need a priest to go in before him. Obedidim, it's in his house. He's being blessed. She, this is plenty to be singing about. And she's mad. And she's mad because she got hosed. And what she didn't see was judge not because you're doing the same things, was that she had skipped over the part about what she was doing in her own life. Because it's not only when I despise it, when it's given to others, I can despise it when I exploit it in myself. 1 Samuel 19, Michael saves David. Saul is coming to kill him. He says that I want him dead. They're, they're starting to, uh, you know, they're going to make him king. We got to kill him. Michael saves his life. And the way she saves his life is she takes an idol from her room and she puts it in a bed and then she puts hair on it. And when Saul's men come, they say, oh no, he's, he's, he's sleeping, he's sick. This is Saul, uh, 1 Samuel 19. And she saves his life, which is awesome, except one question, why did she have an idol in her room? This is a Jewish girl, a follower of Jehovah, and she's got idols in her room? She's despising David, and at the same time in her own life, she's got her thing with her own idols and her own deal. And then... Later down, she's got an opportunity to worship the Lord, and she doesn't because she's despised the goodness of God and not even realized that in her own life that God had been merciful to her, had been good to her. And the point of that is really simple. When I am exploiting it in my own life, like Michael probably, she's thinking, I got away with it. Clearly nothing bad has happened. I'm doing okay. And I keep going. Right, so this, is, this is not a big deal, it's just a little idol, it's a big idol, but nobody sees it, it's a secret, it's in my room. And I'm exploiting the goodness of God. His goodness should be leading me to repentance, but instead I am allowing it to lead me to 
greater sin and to greater uh, hiding and secrets. And, and eventually, Jesus would tell a parable. Actually, Luke chapter 13, he says, he tells the parable of a tree, a fig tree. And that the, uh, the, the, a man had come through and said, hey, this tree is three years in and it has borne no fruit. You should cut it down. It's wasting soil. It's taken up space. And it says that the vineyard owner said, no, 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 give it another year. Give it more time and then, then we'll cut it down. He's giving us more time because he's good. Eventually, your sins, again, it's not God bringing it on you. It's him withstanding the corruption and the, uh, the, the consequences of our own sin. But eventually, eventually, it will be cut down. It isn't, again, God's wrath. It's a, in fact, there's actually a passage in uh, 2 Corinthians 5 that seems a little cryptic where he says, he was talking about a, a, a guy in the church that was in, in, incest and said he wasn't repenting of it. And so he said, we need to uh, turn him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his soul may be saved. That isn't, by the way, saying he, we're going to kill him. It's, it's almost like a modern day, or their version of uh, intervention. Saying, look, if you don't do this, you've got to quit or we're just turning you over and what happens in that world often is in your life is spirals out of control to the point where you will eventually come to yourself. Sometimes we can love them to death. And sometimes loving means truth and says, okay, this is done here. And that was what he was saying about turning it over to Satan for the destruction of your flesh. But for you and for me, what that means is this. We are like the bank teller at a Wells Fargo in 1898. True story. This guy, every day, took home a silver dollar. Every day. Stole it, took it to his attic, kept it, nobody noticed. The next day, 20 years later, every day, takes it to his attic, every day, every day, until he had a vast fortune in his attic. And he put that silver dollar up in his attic and he crawled into bed that night and the ceiling collapsed on him. And all those silver dollars fell on top of him and killed him. Destruction. At some point, you're going to put the last silver dollar in the attic. At some point, it's that one, and God is patient, and he's merciful, and he's long-suffering, forbearing, but you're going to put the last one in at some point. Michael was barren her whole life in the end of uh, 2 Samuel 19 or 20 or 22. He says it's recorded that she had five sons that were adopted. She never had her own kids, but she adopted five. And they were taken to um, the Gibeonites. And they were hung. And it says, and they were cut down. Because Michael, even at the end of her life, it's never recorded that she repented, never recorded that she turned her back on idols. She lived a barren life, a life of destruction, a life that was just cut down because she refused to quit exploiting the goodness of God. And for us today, as we worship just a little while longer, my hope is that whatever silver dollars we're putting in the attic, we quit it. Just clean out the attic. Not because God is angry or God is, but because he's good. And because he's been so patient with you already. I'm sitting here, you're sitting here. Our sin is paid for if we'll just believe and for us to continue to exploit it. It's just really kind of dumb. When you think about it, it's not nice either, but it's just not very smart. And our prayer, my prayer, is that as a church, as individuals, that we can not take on the posture of judging and the condemnation, 
but a posture of loving the goodness of God and recognizing that God is good to all of us. He's giving us all opportunities and all chances and withholding and withstanding the, the, the own con- our own consequences, withholding them from our lives, knowing that eventually the last silver dollar might go up and we, why do you even want to try? Don't hear what I'm not saying, which is, no, yeah, don't hear what I'm not saying, which is, I'm not talking about your eternal salvation. I'm just talking about your life this side of heaven. God's not mad at you. He's just saying, look, this is just not very smart. Quit licking the outlet. It's not helpful. Why would you do that? And he's patient. Just don't despise the goodness of God. Enjoy it and know that it is the path to repentance. Not the fear of, oh, I don't want to kill me, but the goodness that he's extolled to you is a, is a way better motivation to repent. Father, we ask for you to give us wisdom to make us aware and to tell us in our hearts the, what is in our attic that's got to be cleaned out. What silver dollars am I hiding that you need to kick out, that you just need me to throw out? Thank you for being good to me. I mean, seriously, God, thank you. Please forgive uh, me for any of the silver dollars that I'm hiding, things that I need to clean out. Not out of fear, but out of love because of the goodness of your, your son, the goodness of God that leads to repentance. And today that's what we do. We repent. We just change our mind about what we've been doing. We change the direction that we've been going and change it to you. It's in uh, your name and your nature that we pray. Amen.